Parkinson's disease is the second most common neurodegenerative disorder after Alzheimer's disease. Management of the disease remains complicated and should be individualized. In recent years, there have been tremendous advances in research, which has led to improved treatment strategies. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Mandar Jog. He is the Director of the National Parkinson Foundation Centre of Excellence at London Health Sciences Centre, Director of the Movement Disorders Programme in London, Ontario, and Professor of Neurology at Western University. Dr. Jog and his co-authors published a review in the CMAJ examining the clinical presentation and the management of motor and non-motor symptoms in the various stages of Parkinson's disease. I reached Dr. Jog in London. Hello, Dr. Jog. Hello, good morning. So tell me, is Parkinson's disease very common? Is its prevalence on the rise? So Parkinson's disease is the second most common neurodegenerative disorder that we currently see in the population, Alzheimer's disease being number one, Parkinson's disease being number two. The prevalence of Parkinson's disease at the age of 65, uh, which is what quote generally is one in a hundred, means one out of every hundred people that you know uh, has Parkinson's disease. It increases with age and in simplistic terms, it will double and triple from that by the time you're in your 70s, mid 70s, and by the time you're in your mid 80s. Prevalence also separates out between genders. Uh, males being more common than females in that later age group. Earlier age groups, it's almost the same. The actual prevalence of Parkinson's disease probably is not increasing in the population as such. In terms of more patients getting the disease, it's more likely that uh, patients are being either recognized more so as having Parkinson's disease, and also people are living later into the uh, older age groups, and that's why we are seeing a higher number in our clinics of patients with Parkinson's disease. This is a chronic progressive disease where the disease burden accumulates both personally, economically, uh, and the, the load of caregiving increases along with it. So it is not a disease that you can ever stabilize. That's the problem with this disease. And so um, the, the personal and economic burden uh, it's a unique disease in that perspective, is a long duration. ALS is similar, but it's something that lasts only two, three years, four years at the most. Parkinson's disease can last 25 years, and uh, you're looking at more than a quarter of somebody's life uh, that uh, that this happens. The average age of a Parkinson's disease patient in my clinic is 55. So that's just a few years older than what I am. And that's, uh, that's in today a prime of person's uh, life. So uh, you're looking at a, a very large personal and economic burden as compared to the traditional Alzheimer's disease patients who are in their late 70s, 80s, even not that it's a good thing to have. So it's a m misconception that it's an old person's disease. Are there any modifiable risk factors that are known to increase the risk of Parkinson's disease? Uh, so Parkinson's disease is, um, by definition today, idiopathic which means that we have no known ideological correlation between uh, what has happened to you over the years and getting the disease. When we have risk factors specifically, such as exposure to manganese or carbon monoxide or significant head trauma through, for example, uh, years of uh, head injury from boxing, those patients are not at the moment felt to have idiopathic Parkinson's disease. Those then are secondary Parkinsonisms uh, that uh, we would not 
to classify as typical Parkinson's disease. The most common cause of this, as you may know, was uh, von Economo's encephalitis post-influenza after the First World War. Many, many of those patients, and in fact, the movie Awakenings features those patients, had uh, what we would term post-encephalitic Parkinsonism, but did not have idiopathic Parkinson's disease. So uh, at the moment, I would say that there are no modifiable factors for Parkinson's disease uh, because we term that condition idiopathic. There are certain things that we know that potentially um, reduce the risk of onset of Parkinson's in populations, and smoking, for example, is one of them, that uh, if you have smoked, then the risk reduction is fairly statistically significant in the onset of Parkinson's disease. However, we don't tell people to smoke to avoid getting Parkinson's disease. Uh, so uh, in terms of onset of disease or causative risk factors, there aren't any modified risk uh, disease uh, or uh, personal factors. Now, if you get the disease and once you have the disease, um, although nothing has been validated, most people feel that regular physical activity, exercise on a regular basis uh, may change or may have a little bit of neuromodulatory effect, which means that uh, chances of your general health improvement and hence uh, the response to Parkinson's disease and its uh, impact on you will change somewhat. Again, uh, there are no validated data to show that those interventions will certainly change the progression of disease. I find it fascinating that a, that a long-term and chronic disease hasn't shown any modifiable risk factors. How is the diagnosis for Parkinson's disease made? And, and there's the clincher, right? I mean, you, I'll answer your um, uh, last comment along with this. The problem with uh, Parkinson's disease, and in fact, indeed, any neurodegenerative disorder that we currently have uh, of the brain, uh, not ALS where you can make uh, a diagnostic test by doing an, an EMG, for example. For most, if not all, of these other neurodegenerative disorders, such as Parkinson's and Parkinsonism, Alzheimer's disease, there isn't a gold standard uh, that is uh, a diagnostic test, such as measuring your blood sugar for uh, diabetes. And because of that, any intervention that we have, be it the modifiable factors such as exercise, we really don't have a quantitative measure of what it has done to the nervous system uh, after the intervention has occurred. Uh, and because of that, for example, we cannot go in and measure dopamine levels. We cannot do CSF for uh, products of dopamine metabolism. They do not correlate, uh, unfortunately, after years of such investigations to uh, severity of disease, let alone severity of the neurodegeneration or the progression of disease. Because of this lack of what we would call a biomarker, um, the uh, progression of intervention uh, or the effect of intervention, and in fact, even the diagnosis remains entirely a phenotypic or clinical um, uh, measure. So the diagnosis of Parkinson is made, Parkinson's is made by motor features that present to the clinician the classic traditional ones that have remained over the last 200 years, really, uh, as being the diagnostic criteria of tremor, rigidity, bradykinesia, plus or minus postural reflexes, shuffling of gait, hypomimia. All of these phenotypic features uh, are the ones that have been correlated the best with the pathological uh, correlation of Parkinson's disease. So the diagnosis is entirely, even today, clinical. 
So despite the fact that there's no discovery of a new biomarker, for example, there is still much that's new in Parkinson's disease treatment and what we understand about the disease. And that's what your article is about. Are there any factors that predict a benign course of the disease versus a more rapid one? That's a very interesting question. And uh, we've begun to realize that this is indeed the issue in terms of the phenotype that I mentioned with Parkinson's disease. I gave you a list of things that uh, make the typical phenotype, yet patients do not present uh, with that package every time. So the, the clinical feature that we usually use as a prognostic indicator in terms of the typical signs of Parkinson's disease would be presence of tremor. So those patients that have long-term uh, tremor as their predominant symptom, what we would call tremor dominant, and that's not a diagnosis. That's usually several years into the disease where they remain mainly tremor dominant. Those patients seem to have uh, a more benign course. And indeed, in the last decade or so, we've recognized even a variant of that, what we call benign tremulous Parkinsonism, where these patients have such little rigidity and bradykinesia and have so significant a tremor that they may even go 20, 25 years and have a benign tremulous course. However, the majority of patients don't belong in these groups. Uh, most patients with Parkinson's disease will have the whole package at some point in time. Now, later on in disease, and that's why uh, it's important not just to read that review article, but to look at several uh, phenotypes of progression in this condition. At year 8 to 10 and later on, other features such as falls and balance, cognition, difficulty with swallowing, immobility, all of those features and their onset will determine the next state of prognostication in this disease. So the first six to eight years of disease and the ability to give prognosis based on that epoch is different than the next few years and it's different than the following few years. And I guess that makes it tricky for generalists to both diagnose and manage the treatment of patients with Parkinson's disease. What can you tell us about the different presentations and course of the disease? Parkinson's disease, that diagnosis looks like one thing, halfway looks like another. The phenotype changes quite a bit. It's important to recognize uh, at what stage you are seeing the patient, uh, not just because you've diagnosed them and you follow them over the years, but you might actually, and for us, that's very true. We often see the patients four, five, seven years down the road. And now we've got a totally different phenotype where uh, the patient has been managed in a particular way, and we have to change. I even give the example often of saying I've got to change the direction of the train from going to Windsor to change them to go to Toronto. And that's very unique to this disease, right? Because what I use at stage one is actually very different than what I would intervene at stage two and stage three. And, uh, and, and that's critical in understanding in, uh, in terms of treatment and approach to the phenotype of the patient at different stages is uh, is critical. So I would read that review with that idea. What stage is my patient presenting in? And now what do I take out of that review to apply to that stage of the patient as compared to the diagnostic stage of the patient or 10 years down the road and now they're dyskinetic and they have got wearing off? What do I do now with that patient? I mean, it's uh, that that's why the management is so tricky. Dr. Jog, in your article, you review treatments and some of the standard and alternative therapy options for the disease. Can you give us some of the highlights of what's new? 
Absolutely. So I will divide that into oral pharmacotherapy uh, and into the new interventional therapies uh, to keep it simple. The oral pharmacotherapies are all essentially concentrating on dopaminergic uh, modulation, whether it's uh, replacement by our flagship uh, medication, which remains, by the way, the uh, primary uh, core treatment of Parkinson's disease, which is dihydroxyphenylalanine, a precursor of dopamine called levodopa. Uh, That's been discovered, as you know, uh, many, many years ago, 50, 60 years ago, in fact, 100 years ago, when originally it was first uh, used pharmacologically. And that remains in our pharmacotherapy, the mainstay of treatment. And, and we determine the necessity for levodopa entirely based on quality of life requirements of the individual. So in the last 30 years, many things have been talked about in terms of younger patients getting the dopamine agonists versus older patients getting levodopa, et cetera. But the rule of thumb is that if quality of life is impaired and patient is substantially affected uh, in job, in looking after family, in earning money, in communication, et cetera, we use the best drug, which is levodopa. In the interventional world, which is the second part of treatment in the last 20 years or so, there have been uh, two main uh, uh, improvements that have occurred similar to the improvement that occurred after the levodopa introduction, and that is deep brain stimulation with electrical delivery as compared to the chemical de- delivery by mouth. And recently, in the last little while, uh, the delivery of uh, duodopa, which is a, uh, a, a gel formulation that is pumped into the intestine to bypass the pharmacokinetic issues that you face by oral consumption of medication. So we have the traditional oral medications with uh, levodopa and dopaminergic agents and uh, drugs that prolong its actions. And then now the two new ones, uh, which are deep brain stimulation and duodopa. Transplantation and cellular replacement therapies have uh, so far uh, not worked. We have had a review on deep brain stimulation in the past, so that's been around for a number of years. Um, But uh, duodopa therapy, how many years have patients been able to receive that? Right. So in Europe, it has been around probably for about seven, eight years. And in fact, they've had much more experience. In Canada, uh, we were expecting to get it about five years ago. There were some problems with the technology, but we have now had it in Canada uh, in clinical use, I would say probably a year and a half. We've done half a dozen patients here in London. Toronto has experience with maybe a few more. And around the country, uh, expert centers are being set up where you have a team of a gastroenterologist that puts in the PEG-J, which is the uh, jejunostomy along with the percutaneous gastrostomy. Uh, and then uh, we do all of the monitoring and modulation of the pump, which is a gel pack that is 16 hours in duration. So we have a patient going through titration as we speak actually today, uh, where we uh, we have the, the uh, caregiver and the patient uh, be familiarized with the pump. And the pump delivers uh, small aliquots of uh, this uh, proprietary gel uh, there are newer technologies that are coming out uh, in test mode anyway. At the moment, uh, there's a company from uh, Israel that has a subcutaneous levodopa pump therapy that we are going to test here in London, hopefully in the next six months. And there's a new patch technology in the last few years as well. Um, those are all newer things that are being tested uh, in in Parkinson's disease. It's great to hear that there are these new options for patients with such a debilitating disease. What tools and resources are available for physicians to assist with the diagnosis and management of Parkinson's, generalist physicians? 
So the difficulty with Parkinson's disease is its clinical diagnostic uh, requirements. And unless somebody is really certain that the patient has what are traditional and accepted diagnostic criteria, the diagnosis is where often uh, the first uh, difficulty lies. So if you're unsure, it is best to get expert opinion, even at the level of diagnosis. The reason for this is that uh, you make a, uh, a diagnosis of a progressive neurodegenerative disease, and I'm actually very careful until I'm sure giving that diagnosis out because it changes the long-term uh, outcome in the patient's mind. The second is therapy. Uh, just to give you a very quick example, uh, levodopa, which um, many people think is actually dopamine to start with, is a mistake. It is a precursor that has to be taken by mouth without taking proteins uh, and has to be absorbed across the blood-brain barrier, etc. It is also made up of two different compounds that have two different half-lives, are metabolized differently, and yet it is a very simple drug to administer to write a prescription. If you don't understand the pharmacology well enough, then the outcome for the patient can be quite complicated. The problem is response to levodopa is included as a diagnostic factor and hence, if you don't administer it properly, uh, the diagnosis itself can be affected. All of these nuances have to be uh, very carefully assessed by a physician that's making the diagnosis and uh, treating these patients. And given the fact that you're committing yourself to a 15, 20-year course of disease, I urge uh, general practitioners to get second opinions if there's even a small amount of doubt that this is something that is not typical. And many of our patients uh, are have nuances like this. So don't rush into the diagnosis or treatment right away. It's okay if our waiting lists are long. It's still better to get an expert opinion and then manage the patient uh, from that point on than making a diagnostic mistake early on and then changing the, the, the state of the patient's disease right then and there. That's great advice. And your review is very comprehensive in detailing what a patient with Parkinson's disease presents like and how they are treated. Thank you for joining us today, Dr. Jog. You're welcome. Thanks. I've been speaking with Dr. Mandar Jog, Director of the National Parkinson Foundation Center of Excellence at London Health Sciences Center, Director of the Movement Disorders Program in London, Ontario, and Professor of Neurology at Western University. To read the review article he co-authored, visit cmaj.ca.